Chapter Three of Book Five of Les Misérables, Volume Four by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Eastman. Les Misérables, Volume Four by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book Five the end of which does not resemble the beginning. Chapter 3. Enriched with Commentaries by Toussaint In the garden, near the railing on the street, there was a stone bench, screened from the eyes of the curious by a plantation of yoke-elms, but which could, in case of necessity, be reached by an arm from the outside, past the trees and the gate. One evening, during that same month of April, Jean Valjean had gone out. Cosette had seated herself on this bench after sundown. The breeze was blowing briskly in the trees. Cosette was meditating. An objectless sadness was taking possession of her little by little, that invincible sadness evoked by the evening, and which arises, perhaps, who knows, from the mystery of the tomb which is ajar at that hour. Perhaps Fantine was within that shadow. Cosette rose, slowly made the tour of the garden, walking on the grass drenched in dew, and sang to herself, through the species of melancholy somnambulism in which she was plunged, Really, one needs wooden shoes for the garden at this hour. One takes cold. She returned to the bench. As she was about to resume her seat there, she observed on the spot which she had quitted a tolerably large stone which had, evidently, not been there a moment before. Cosette gazed at the stone, asking herself what it meant. All at once the idea occurred to her that the stone had not reached the bench all by itself, that someone had placed it there, that an arm had been thrust through the railing, and this idea appeared to alarm her. This time the fear was genuine. The stone was there no doubt was possible. She did not touch it, fled without glancing behind her, took refuge in the house, and immediately closed with shutter, bolt, and bar the door-like window opening on the flight of steps. She inquired of Toussaint, "'Has my father returned yet?' "'Not yet, mademoiselle.' We have already noted once for all the fact that Toussaint stuttered. May we be permitted to dispense with it for the future?' The musical notation of an infirmity is repugnant to us. Jean Valjean, a thoughtful man and given to nocturnal strolls, often returned quite late at night. Toussaint, went on Cosette, are you careful to thoroughly barricade the shutters opening on the garden, at least with bars in the evening, and to put the little iron things in the little rings that close them? Oh, be easy on that score, miss. Toussaint did not fail in her duty, and Cosette was well aware of the fact, but she could not refrain from adding, It is so solitary here. So far as that is concerned, said Toussaint, it is true. We might be assassinated before we had time to say, Oh! And monsieur does not sleep in the house to boot. But fear nothing, miss, I fasten the shutters up like prisons. Lone women! That is enough to make one shudder, I believe you. Just imagine, 
What if you were to see men enter your chamber at night, and say, hold your tongue, and begin to cut your throat? It's not the dying so much. You die, for one must die, and that's all right. It's the abomination of feeling those people touch you. And then their knives. They can't be able to cut well with them. Oh, good gracious! Be quiet, said Cosette. Fasten everything thoroughly. Cosette, terrified by the melodrama improvised by Toussaint, and possibly also by the recollection of the apparitions of the past week which recurred to her memory, dared not even say to her, Go and look at the stone which has been placed on the bench, for fear of opening the garden gate and allowing the men to enter. She saw that all the doors and windows were carefully fastened, made Toussaint go all over the house from garret to cellar, locked herself up in her own chamber, bolted her door, looked under her couch, went to bed, and slept badly. All night long she saw that big stone, as large as a mountain and full of caverns. At sunrise, the property of the rising sun is to make us laugh at all our terrors of the past night, and our laughter is in direct proportion to our terror which they have caused. At sunrise, Cosette, when she woke, viewed her fright as a nightmare, and said to herself, What have I been thinking of? It is like the footsteps that I thought I heard a week or two ago in the garden at night. It is like the shadow of the chimney-pot. Am I becoming a coward? The sun, which was glowing through the crevices in her shutters, and turning the damask curtains crimson, reassured her to such an extent that everything vanished from her thoughts, even the stone. There was no more a stone on the bench than there was a man in a round hat in the garden. I dreamed about the stone, as I did all the rest. She dressed herself, descended to the garden, ran to the bench, and broke out in a cold perspiration. The stone was there. But this lasted only for a moment. That which is terror by night is curiosity by day. Bah! said she. Come, let us see what it is. She lifted the stone, which was tolerably large. Beneath it was something which resembled a letter. It was a white envelope. Cosette seized it. There was no address on one side, no seal on the other. Yet the envelope, though unsealed, was not empty. Papers could be seen inside. Cosette examined it. It was no longer alarm, it was no longer curiosity. It was a beginning of anxiety. Cosette drew from the envelope its contents, a little notebook of paper, each page of which was numbered, and bore a few lines in a very fine and rather pretty handwriting, as Cosette thought. Cosette looked for a name. There was none. To whom was this addressed? To her, probably, since a hand had deposited the packet on her bench. From whom did it come? An irresistible fascination took possession of her. She tried to turn away her eyes from the leaflets which were trembling in her hand. She gazed at the sky, the street, the acacias all bathed in light, the pigeons fluttering over a neighboring roof, and then her glance suddenly fell upon the manuscript, and she said to herself that she must know what it contained. This is what she read. Chapter 4 A Heart Beneath a Stone 
the reduction of the universe to a single being, the expansion of a single being even to God, that is love. Love is the salutation of the angels to the stars. How sad is the soul when it is sad through love! What a void in the absence of the being who by herself fills the world! Oh, how true it is that the beloved being becomes God! One could comprehend that God might be jealous of this, had not God the Father of all evidently made creation for the soul, and the soul for love. The glimpse of a smile beneath a white crepe bonnet with a lilac curtain is sufficient to cause the soul to enter into the palace of dreams. God is behind everything, but everything hides God. Things are black, creatures are opaque. To love a being is to render that being transparent. Certain thoughts are prayers. There are moments when, whatever the attitude of the body may be, the soul is on its knees. Parted lovers beguile absence by a thousand chimerical devices, which possess, however, a reality of their own. They are prevented from seeing each other, they cannot write to each other. They discover a multitude of mysterious means to correspond. They send each other the song of the birds, the perfume of the flowers, the smiles of children, the light of the sun, the sighings of the breeze, the rays of stars, all creation. And why not? All the works of God are made to serve love. Love is sufficiently potent to charge all nature with its messages. O oh, spring, thou art a letter that I write to her. The future belongs to hearts even more than it does to minds. Love, that is the only thing that can occupy and fill eternity. In the infinite, the inexhaustible is requisite. Love participates of the soul itself. It is of the same nature. Like it, it is the divine spark. Like it, it is incorruptible, indivisible, imperishable. It is a point of fire that exists within us, which is immortal and infinite, which nothing can confine, and which nothing can extinguish. We feel it burning even to the very marrow of our bones, and we see it beaming in the very depths of heaven. O oh, love, adorations! Voluptuousness of two minds which understand each other, of two hearts which exchange with each other, of two glances which penetrate each other. You will come to me, will you not, Bliss? Strolls by twos in the solitudes, blessed and radiant days. I have sometimes dreamed that from time to time, hours detached themselves from the lives of the angels and came here below to traverse the destinies of men. God can add nothing to the happiness of those who love, except to give them endless duration. After a life of love, an eternity of love is in fact an augmentation. But to increase in intensity even the ineffable felicity which love bestows on the soul even in this world is impossible, even to God. God is the plenitude of heaven. Love is the plenitude of man. You look at a star for two reasons, because it is luminous and because it is impenetrable. You have beside you a sweeter radiance and a greater mystery, woman. 
All of us, whoever we may be, have our respirable beings. We lack air and we stifle. Then we die. To die for lack of love is horrible. Suffocation of the soul. When love has fused and mingled two beings in a sacred and angelic unity, the secret of life has been discovered so far as they are concerned. They are no longer anything more than the two boundaries of the same destiny. They are no longer anything but the two wings of the same spirit. Love soar. On the day when a woman, as she passes before you, emits light as she walks, you are lost, you love. But one thing remains for you to do, to think of her so intently that she is constrained to think of you. What love commences can be finished by God alone. True love is in despair and is enchanted over a glove lost or a handkerchief found, and eternity is required for its devotion and its hopes. It is composed both of the infinitely great and the infinitely little. If you are a stone, be adamant. If you are a plant, be the sensitive plant. If you are a man, be love. Nothing suffices for love. We have happiness, we desire paradise. We possess paradise, we desire heaven. O ye who love each other, all this is contained in love. Understand how to find it there. Love has contemplation as well as heaven, and more than heaven it has voluptuousness. Does she still come to the Luxembourg? No, sir. This is the church where she attends Mass, is it not? She no longer comes here. Does she still live in this house? She has moved away. Where has she gone to dwell? She did not say. What a melancholy thing, not to know the address of one's soul. Love has its childishness. Other passions have their pettinesses. Shame on the passions which belittle man, honor to the one which makes a child of him. There is one strange thing, do you know it? I dwell in the night. There is a being who carried off my sky when she went away. Oh, would that we were lying side by side in the same grave, hand in hand, and from time to time in the darkness gently caressing a finger. That would suffice for my eternity. Ye who suffer because ye love, love yet more. To die of love is to live in it. Love, a somber and starry transfiguration, is mingled with this torture. There is ecstasy in agony. O oh, joy of the birds, it is because they have nests that they sing. Love is a celestial respiration of the air of paradise. Deep hearts, sage minds, take life as God has made it. It is a long trial an incomprehensible preparation for an unknown destiny. This destiny, the true one, begins for a man with the first step inside the tomb. Then something appears to him, and he begins to distinguish the definitive. The definitive meditate upon that word. The living perceive the infinite. 
the definitive permits itself to be seen only by the dead. In the meanwhile, love and suffer, hope and contemplate. Woe, alas, to him who shall have loved only bodies, forms, appearances. Death will deprive him of all. Try to love souls, you will find them again. I encountered in the street a very poor young man who was in love. His hat was old, his coat was worn, his elbows were in holes. Water trickled through his shoes, and the stars through his soul. What a grand thing it is to be loved! What a far grander thing it is to love! The heart becomes heroic by dint of passion. It is no longer composed of anything but what is pure. It no longer rests on anything that is not elevated and great. An unworthy thought can no more germinate in it than a nettle on a glacier. The serene and lofty soul, inaccessible to vulgar passions and emotions, dominating the clouds and the shades of this world, its follies, its lies, its hatreds, its vanities, its miseries, inhabits the blue of heaven, and no longer feels anything but profound and subterranean shocks of destiny, as the crests of mountains feel the shocks of earthquake. If there did not exist someone who loved, the sun would become extinct. End of Book 5, Chapter 4